morning, brothers and sisters. It's good to be with you. Just recently, I was in a conversation with a few people about uh, weddings. And in this conversation, I was reflecting on my own wedding as I was thinking about things that I remembered from it. Uh, and, you know, as I was thinking about the things that I remember, later that night, I reflected on the things that I didn't remember, uh, which is also, I think, useful to do. Uh, and one of the things that seemed important before the wedding that I clearly have not remembered since then was the seating chart. Uh, this is something that uh, may cause stress when you plan a wedding. There's pressure. After all, you want your guests to have uh, an enjoyable time, so you want to put people around, people they know and can have conversations with. You want family to feel honored, and so usually there's some kind of re reserve section. Um, but that, that is not at all something that I think about when I'm reflecting on my own wedding. What I remember is that people were there and that I was with my bride. Well, in our text this morning, the, the disciples find themselves thinking about what the seating chart might be like in the kingdom of God. And they go so far as to even ask Jesus for a few specific seats next to him. Let's read our passage to see how he responds to such a request. Turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10, verse 32. Mark 10, verse 32, and we're going to be going through verses 32 through 45, and you can find that on page 846 of the Bibles provided. Uh, and if you don't have a Bible, I haven't said this in a while, uh, but if you don't have a Bible at home to read on your own, feel free to just take one of the Bibles underneath the chairs as our gift to you, free of charge. We would love for you to just have your own personal copy to read at home. Uh, we believe that God has spoken to us by his word, that it is inspired by his spirit, that it is without error in everything it intends to communicate. And so we think that there is nothing more important than for you to read the very word of God yourself. I've said from the beginning of this series through the Gospel of Mark that the author is concerned with reminding his readers who Jesus is and why he came to earth. And so Mark is writing his account of Jesus' life. He's writing to Christians in Rome, which would have been a mixed congregation of Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians under uh, much persecution from the Roman government. And structurally, the first eight chapters of the book pretty much focus on who Jesus is. And so if you read through, you'll notice uh, Mark makes lots of comments about those who observed miracles or heard his teaching and how they were amazed. And there's this floating question around, who is this man? Well, the turning point comes in chapter 8, verse 29, when Jesus asked Peter, who Peter believes Jesus is, and he rightly says, you are the Christ. And from that point on, from Peter's confession, the momentum of the book shifts to, from the identity of Jesus to the reason he came. And they are journeying to Jerusalem. And as they do, Jesus is teaching them about what he's going to do. And therefore, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Uh, the things that he's been teaching have been nothing short of a radical lifestyle for those who will enter the kingdom of God. And already he has predicted twice 
his death and resurrection. We come now to the third and final prediction that Jesus makes about his life and uh, another correcting of the disciples' ideas about what it means to be a disciple of his. And before we read our passage, I'd like to just lead us in prayer one more time. Let's, Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. Your word is sweeter than honey. Would you satisfy us with it this morning, we pray. Uh, Give us understanding. Renew our minds that our faith in you would increase and abound. Uh, Would you reveal your will to us this morning through this passage. Amen. Let's read our passage together now. Mark 10, verses 32 through 45. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him. Saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am to be baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here we have possibly the clearest summary of Jesus' life in the entire book. That the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. We're going to be thinking about that and its meaning within the context of this great teaching about the Messiah's suffering. Uh, The main idea of this passage, if you're taking notes, is that we are called to be servants of others because Jesus was a servant to us. We are called to be servants of others because Jesus was a servant to us. And I think that will become clear as we go through the passage. Uh, My prayer is that studying these verses will remind you of the great sacrifice of our Savior, and that it would lead you to become a better servant in your own life, uh, in the various spheres that you occupy. Uh, So first, we have a detailed prediction in verses 32 through 34, a detailed prediction. 
This is the third time now that Jesus is mentioned. He will in some way be killed and rise again. And every time we've come across one of these sayings, we're reminded not to take for granted the expectations of the Messiah at the time, uh, that they were politically charged, meaning the Jews currently underneath the rule of the Romans, who were Gentiles, expected a Messiah figure to be one to lead a military or political upheaval, to overthrow Rome and reclaim the Holy Land, that he would restore the kingdom to its previous glory during the time of David or Solomon. But how different is that from what Jesus tells them will happen to them, to, to him, in these passion predictions? Uh, we know that it's not a simple matter of them just mistaking a normal guy to be the Messiah, as Jesus has performed countless miracles and teachings up to this point. And not only that, but Peter confessed Jesus as the Christ, as we mentioned, which means Messiah or anointed one. And Jesus has referred to himself as the Son of Man throughout the book, linking himself with the prophecy of Daniel in Daniel 7. The Son of Man is the one who would bring judgment and wrath against mankind. So there's no mistaking Jesus for someone else at this point. He talks the talk and walks the walk, you could say. And this perhaps is the reason that Mark says that the disciples were amazed as they're walking up to Jerusalem and others around them even afraid. Because as they come closer to Jerusalem, adrenaline would be building, not knowing what would happen when Jesus arrives, perhaps expecting battle or perhaps another display of his great power. And as they approached Jerusalem, they must have just been thinking, this is it. Uh, We are about to witness history change forever. And they weren't wrong about that. But how that history would change, they were. And so for the third time, Jesus tells them exactly what will happen. Though this time, if you were to put it up against the previous two predictions, uh, this one has lots more details. He says that he will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, then over to the Gentiles. And it's that bit about the Gentiles especially that's unique to this prediction. And it's important because of a few reasons. First, it's just what actually happened. So Jesus is predicting what what eventually comes to pass. Uh, But even more than that, uh, the Jews didn't have the authority or the power of the sword in the land. Uh, They couldn't just execute someone. So it had to be the Romans. And not only that, but the cross itself was the most gruesome fate. And so for someone like the Jewish Messiah to die at the hands of a Gentile or the uncircumcised was particularly shameful. Notice the amount of detail, though, in these verses. He says he'll be mocked, spit on, flogged, killed. I think one of the reasons Jesus told his disciples Uh, that this would happen three times, at least that we know of. He could have told them more than that, but Mark at least records it three times. Uh, It was because of their lack of understanding. And another reason these predictions came to be was to remind believers, that is Mark's audience in Rome, that Christ's death was no accident. It was not just an unfortunate event or a casualty in a revolt. Uh, This was the calculated and carefully orchestrated plan of God. Jesus was not taken against his will, but like the prophecy said in Isaiah, 
He went willingly like a lamb to the slaughter. This, I think all of this makes the amazement and fear of those following Jesus all the more weighty as we read as he's on his way up to Jerusalem. You can tell that the way Jesus addresses his disciples, he's preparing them for something that they don't expect. Um, I don't know if you've ever wondered why Jesus sometimes talks in the third person. He does so here. And the reason I think that he does so here is because the title Son of Man had immense implications by itself. It happens to be the way Jesus most commonly refers to himself throughout the book. But without a doubt, he's referring to the kind of celestial authority that he has. And just listen to this description of the Son of Man from Daniel 7, verse 14. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So how do you, rec- how do you reconcile that description of the Son of Man with what Jesus says will happen to him? It's no wonder the disciples didn't seem to understand what he's saying. In Luke's account of this passage, he records Jesus prefacing his comments by saying, everything that's written about the Son of Man by the prophets will come to pass, will be accomplished. And then after he gives his prediction about being killed and rising again, uh, Luke adds his own narration. And what Luke says is, of the disciples, they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what he said. And there's a few really important truths about the fact that the disciples didn't understand Jesus' words, uh, as plain as they were. You know, I don't know about you, but when I read these things, I just think it's so obvious, and it's easy for us to say 2,000 years later, uh, right? But how did they not know what was going to happen? It seems so clear. But it's the fact that the Lord sometimes chooses in his wisdom to keep things hidden from us or to uh, reveal at a certain time or to cause us to live by faith until faith becomes sight. Uh, The Spirit gives understanding and wisdom. And it's not until after Jesus is raised from the grave that the disciples would understand any of these things. These passion predictions give us confidence in God's providential plan and power to work over the course of history to redeem his people. So do you, personally, do you struggle not knowing what the future holds for you? you? If you do struggle with that, I can probably assure you that you're not alone in that struggle. I think everyone has felt that at times. But we worship a God who has determined beforehand everything that will come to pass. And we can be assured that God knows what will happen to us, just as he did with the disciples here. Not only that, but uh, you can, in your own life, uh, when thinking about the future, if you worry about it, rather than wondering or asking what God will do for you, we should ask ourselves, what has God already done for us? Because in the mission of Jesus on the road to Jerusalem, we see that Something much greater than a piece of land is at stake. His kingdom is not temporal but everlasting and is comprised of people from all nations. 
the death and resurrection of Jesus was prepared by God himself so that we could have eternal life. So no matter the situation, we know how great his love is for us. We know what lengths he will go to for us. We know he has the power to sustain us. So we can have comfort knowing God has a plan for every one of us. Point one was a detailed prediction. Point two, in verses 35 through 41, is a daring presumption. A daring presumption. And this comes from the two brothers, James and John, uh, known as the sons of thunder. That's what they're called back in chapter three. And no one really knows why they're called that. Uh, But some people think it's because of this very uh, instance. It's probably because they are known to be zealous or passionate disciples. They are a part of Jesus' inner circle. Remember, it's James, John, and Peter who go up the Mount of the Transfiguration where Jesus reveals his glory to them. And by the way, each time Jesus has predicted his death in 831, 931, now 10, and 34, uh, each time he's predicted his death, the disciples respond foolishly, and then Jesus follows that foolishness with a lesson about discipleship. It's that same pattern we see here today, only this time it's not Peter saying the foolish thing, it's James and John. Uh, I don't know if you have ever been in a conversation with someone, and in the conversation you start thinking about something else, and then you, you stop thinking about something, and you realize the other person's still talking, and then you realize, oh, I have no idea what they just said. And so then you ask a follow-up question. This, I guess, is my confession that this happens to me. And when you ask the question about uh, whatever it is you're interested in, they're like, I just explained that to you. Were you not even paying attention? That's kind of like what it feels like is happening here with the disciples. Jesus makes this horrible prediction about what's going to happen to him in Jerusalem. And then James and John come along, seeming to be totally clueless at this point. They clearly didn't register what he had said because they're picturing themselves sitting next to Jesus in glory. And on the one hand, we could maybe admire some of this enthusiasm, uh, right? There's no shred of doubt in their minds that Jesus is going to be king. Uh, There's no question about it. First they say, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And then they wait for him to answer, almost like signing a blank check before they make their request. Uh, This is kind of like when you ask a favor for someone. I heard heard a comedian one time make this joke. The length of the pause will tell you how large the favor is going to be. So if there's a very little pause, can you do me a favor? Please pass that pen over to me. Then you know the favor is going to be really small. But if it's a large pause, hey, can you do me a favor? It's probably going to be a a larger favor, favor. And that's what the disciples are doing here. They want him to commit before he even knows what it is. And Jesus is still gracious with them, isn't he? And their question is outrageous. Uh, Granted, they've been with him for a while. They did leave a lot to follow him. They dropped their nets and came to him when he called. But very simply, they have more confidence than is good for them. They are thinking about their own glory. Specifically, they're thinking about their own glory over and against their fellow disciples. And we know that from verse 41, as the rest of the group later despises them 
for their request. Uh, they don't want to be, they, they don't just want to be thought well of by Jesus, but they want the very top seats of honor. Now just pause for a moment and think about the way that they make this request to Jesus. Does your prayer life look kind of like this? Meaning, are your prayers always and only in the form of requests of what Jesus or what God can do for you? Are they driven completely by your own desires or by the will of God? I'm not saying that we should never bring our desires before the Lord. He wants to hear them, certainly. But we need to be careful that we don't treat God like a genie who we hope will just answer our requests. Our prayers should always be tempered with the will of God. They should be instructed and informed by what we know God's will is based on Scripture. And the closer our will aligns with that, I think the more pleased he will be to hear our prayers and to answer those prayers. Remember, Jesus taught us how to pray by saying, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, if you're here and maybe you're, you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, what is it? First, I'm so glad that you're here. Please know you're always welcome. Uh, we are so thankful that you would spend some time with us on a Sunday morning. I assume that you're at least curious about God. And so let me just ask you, what, what do you want from God? And be honest with your answer. Do you want a God who is worthy to be praised and worthy to be served by you? Or are you looking for a God who will simply cater to your own needs? And is that anything other than just simply worshiping yourself? Now, typically a king would be seated next to his number two on his right and someone else powerful on his left, uh, perhaps trusted advisors or bodyguards. And so James and John clearly want to be as high as they can in the kingdom of God, which is extremely bold. So just think for a minute. Picture a great feast, a great banquet in heaven with Jesus. And this is a biblical image. Picture the marriage supper of the Lamb for a moment. Jesus is at the head of the table. And all the saints throughout all of history are present, joyfully present. And at the table is enough seats for everyone. Each place has a name card on it. Who do you picture sitting closest to Jesus? And if I were, this is totally speculation, by the way, but if I were to guess, I might say something like, maybe Moses and Elijah would be a good guess. They showed up next to Jesus already once. Uh, maybe Abraham or David or Joseph or Daniel, Noah, perhaps the apostle Paul. Those are just people in the Bible. What if we go throughout all of history? What about John Bunyan or William Tyndale or George Whitfield or Wesley? Piper's got to be in there somewhere. Now think about where do you see your own plate in the picture? How close are you sitting to Jesus? Who do you think you're closer than? Or who do you think is closer to Jesus than you? The daring presumption that is made by James and John is that they believe they should be first and second in the kingdom. And this is where the backwards logic of the kingdom that we've seen so far in the Gospel of Mark becomes clear. 
Jesus says that those who are first are last, and those who are last are first. Now, my guess is if you were to ask any one of the great examples of faith that I just mentioned, if you were to ask them, none of them would consider themselves worthy to be near our Savior in heaven. Paul himself referred to himself as the foremost sinner. There's a, a great story by, about the lives of George Whitfield and John Wesley. Uh, they were amazing preachers, and they had some significant theological disagreements, uh, publicly even, so much so that someone even asked George Whitfield one time if he believed that he would see Wesley in heaven. And Whitfield replied, I fear not. And what he said was, I fear I will not see him, for he will be so near the eternal throne, and we at such a distance, we shall hardly get sight of him. I think this is the kind of humility that should be marked in the Christian. We should see others as more significant than ourselves, as Paul says in Philippians 2, verse 3. This is the humility that the disciples lacked at the time. Jesus responds to them first by saying they have no idea what they're asking. And then he asks them what I think is meant to be a rhetorical question. He asks them, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am to be baptized? And the answer to both should be obviously no. We cannot. And the reason is because the cup is, uh, is an image for God's judgment, for absorbing the wrath of God. Jesus is referring to the wrath of God that he will take upon himself on the cross. Uh, the cup is often a picture of judgment and wrath in the Old Testament. Remember moments before Jesus is betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. He, he prays to God. And he says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. So the cup is clearly referring to God's wrath absorbed by him on the cross. His baptism also is referring to his death, which he just predicted. It's, it's the image or idea of being swallowed up, completely submerged in a grave. It's a metaphor of being overwhelmed or overtaken with sorrow and misfortune. Jesus is referring to his passion prediction that would fulfill passages like Psalm 22, Why have you forsaken me? Or Isaiah 53 of the suffering servant, Man of sorrows, Lamb of God. There is little in their minds, James and John's minds, of the sacrifice and suffering. It is only glory. And look at their confidence, the way that they say, We are able. Now, brothers and sisters, beware of this kind of arrogance, and ignorance displayed by the brothers. In their arrogance, they believe themselves to be far greater than other disciples, lifting themselves first. And in their ignorance, they believe the crown of glory would come apart from suffering of any kind, apart from sacrifice. There will indeed be reward in heaven, but if Jesus has been teaching his disciples anything, it's that they need to be prepared to be treated the same way Jesus will be treated. And I think that's what he means when he then says that they will drink the cup and be baptized with the same baptism. He doesn't mean that uh, they're going to carry out the same mission as the Messiah. But they will by association 
with him suffer and be treated with contempt. As his followers, there will be suffering and sacrifice. Later on, James is killed by Herod. John is exiled to an island. And then he addresses their question directly uh, about this seating chart in heaven. Jesus says that those seats are not for him to give away, but that they are for those to whom it has been prepared. And it's one of those instances where we see the unique roles of God the Father and God the Son, equal in authority and power, and yet Jesus implies that those seats have already been prepared for some, and that only the Father grants those positions. It's not as though Jesus doesn't know who's filling those places, or that he doesn't have the authority to say, but the point he's making is that God determines our reward. And, it's not, and it is part of his perfect planning. Jesus is also teaching them primarily that the places of honor in heaven cannot be earned. They can only be granted by the mercy and the grace of God. Not only is their motive incorrect, but their idea about attaining that glory is way off. Now, ambition, I think it's good to note, ambition by itself is not bad or may not be bad. But we often aim our ambitions in the wrong direction. So why not, if you're an ambitious person, make one of your goals as a Christian, I think, I think all Christians should make it their aim and ambition to grow in humility, to aspire to be a better servant of others. Jesus then turns to instruct the whole group. And it's likely that they're indignant towards James and John, not because they were being foolish, uh, meaning they, they were embarrassed about James and John's question, but I think they were jealous that they didn't think to ask the question first. Uh, and that's, I, I think that's obvious by the way that Jesus then is instructing the entire group this way. And that's what takes us to the third point, a disciple's posture. A disciple's posture, verses 42 through 45. All this talk about sitting with Jesus in glory leads to another teaching of Jesus about discipleship. So previously, he's instructed them on the issues of marriage, on children, on possessions, and now he instructs them on status. He points out the secular model of authority as a negative example. He says, look at the way the Gentile rulers operate. They use their positions of authority to lord it over their subjects. They exercise dominion over each other. They see themselves as more important as those, than those underneath them. And the word used here to describe these people is often used to describe a tyrant. And we can easily make the mistake in our sin of equating authority with value and dignity. So it's easy to think less of those who might be underneath us, or maybe wrongfully think too highly of people who are over us. But that's not how followers of Jesus are to behave. Disciples of Christ operate on a different kind of hierarchy. And Jesus has already taught this in chapter 9, verse 35, saying if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Now he tells them that those among us who will be great must be servants. Whoever will be first must be like a slave. 
godly greatness and prominence manifests itself not in recognition or accomplishments or giftings or wisdom. Godly greatness and prominence manifests itself in service to others, like a waiter waiting tables or a household servant that tends to the needs of a family. So Christians are to serve others. Uh, Look again at verses 43 and 44. Notice that Jesus says that those who would be great must be our servants. They must be a slave of all. Uh, This is not a negotiable for Christians, but a requirement. It's simply how Christians are to operate as servants of one another. So my question for you this morning is, do you see one of your primary responsibilities as a Christian as being a servant to others? Do you look for opportunities to serve others? And I don't just mean physically providing for needs. Those things are really important. But I would also argue we should aspire to be spiritual servants of one another as well, encouraging others in the faith, helping one another follow Jesus. There are so many ways that we can serve one another. And frankly, I think that you as a church do this really well, Uh, whether it be through giving rides to and from the airport, uh, hosting others in your homes for dinner, setting up and tearing down before our prayer service and and, uh, potluck, praying through the directory, sticking around to have meaningful conversations afterwards. I've been so encouraged by the way that you model this kind of servant-heartedness as a church. Uh, It goes without saying that those who are in leadership in the church should be especially marked by this kind of servant-heartedness. Those who are deacons or elders should be especially servant-hearted and humble. So if you aspire to be one of those things, let me just encourage you all the more to look for ways that you can serve others. And remember that service of others begins with the posture of the heart. Why should we serve one another? Why should we be servants? Jesus answers that question here too in verse 45. He says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And the word in that sentence I want to draw your attention to is that second one, even. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Friends, think about what I said earlier about the Son of Man's dominion and authority. Is there anyone you can think of more worthy to be served. And yet even he did not demand it, but came first to serve others. Brothers and sisters, if someone so worthy as the Son of Man came to serve, then how much more should we consider ourselves servants? If our Lord himself came to be a servant and we claim to follow him in any way, then how can obedience look like anything other than being a servant like him? And we're not called to Christianize uh, the nation. I think it's an important point from this text. Uh, We're not called to be in control necessarily. Uh, I don't think it's bad, and I think it's certainly probably good. The more Christians in prominent roles, the better. But we are not called to have power the way the world thinks about power. We are called to serve. And if we are to change the culture, it will be through are serving them, not through electing certain officials or through overturning certain laws. 
How did Jesus serve others? The answer is in the very same verse. He gave his life as a ransom for many. Jesus performed the ultimate act of service on the cross. He died the death that we deserved in order to take upon himself the wrath that we deserved. And because he was without sin, his death was enough to pay our ransom. This word ransom is so important in the Bible. It's typically referred to in instances of bail, or uh, bail out of jail, for example, or some kind of exchange. The idea was already built into the fabric of Israel's history because they had to require sacrifices to rid themselves of guilt, symbolically. And that's why when Jesus steps onto the scene in John 1, he proclaims, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 This is what some have called the sweet exchange. The mission of the Son of God, as told in his three predictions, was the giving up of his own life for the sake of his people, so that we could be forgiven. Uh, friend, if you have never put your trust in Jesus, consider how he laid his life down so that you could be forgiven. Consider turning from your sins and trusting in him for forgiveness and eternal life. I think John, who was listening to this, took this teaching to heart. I, I think later he clearly understood because he would write in 1 John 3.16, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay our, life down, our lives down for the brothers. We are not only to be servants of others, we are to model our service of others after our Savior, who was the greatest servant of all. This passage is just dripping with anticipation of the cross. The disciples are not able to see past their own ambition and hope for glory. And they do so so much so that they ignore the possibility altogether of Jesus being the suffering servant. Mark clearly wants his readers to see that Jesus is the fulfillment of the great suffering servant passage in Isaiah. Listen to these readings from it. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, was, he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt... He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. It sounds like Mark 10.45, doesn't it? Who will be a ransom for many, make many to be accounted righteous. This is the cup in the baptism. Jesus knew was ahead of him as he led the way to Jerusalem. But that's not all. Look again at verses 37 and 38 again. And they said to him, Grant us to sit, 
one at your right hand and one at your left in glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. They expected glory in Jerusalem, so they asked to sit at his right and his left. Now turn a few pages over in your Bibles to Mark 15. The chapters we're skipping over to get to 15 are the detailed accounts of what Jesus predicted would happen to him up to the point of him hanging on the cross. And this is Mark's description of it, starting in verse 25 and following. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. I think Mark wrote this way to bring to mind James and John's request to show them what the Son of Man was going to do. James and John did not know what they were asking. For all the confidence they had, they were nowhere to be found at this point. For they didn't realize at what cost glory would come. We have the hope of glory, but only because of the cup he drank and the baptism with which he was baptized. So brothers and sisters, we are to be servants of others. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to grow in our humility. We pray that you would help us to consider ourselves as last of all. Help us to serve others the way your son, Jesus, served us. We pray that you would help us in our weaknesses. We praise you because in love you came and sought sinners like us. We could not pay for the wrath that we deserve from our sins on our own. But because Christ died for sinners, we are forgiven and have eternal life. We praise you for all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.